Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brennan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your camera. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog adventure of your own. It's episode 86, (laughs) and we are joined on episode 86 with one of our favorite Milky Way photographers, absolutely a Milky Way guru, Ian Norman from LonelySpec.com. Ian, hey man. Hey guys, hey Aaron. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for joining us. And like last week, guys, if you're listening to this podcast in your car, sorry you missed out, but you can still go see the replay because we are live on Facebook again an hour late after we decided to go live. Oh, my gods. I won't bring it up. I'll just be thinking about the awesomeness that we're about to have here hanging with Ian so you can see him bright and clear at your home in Chicago, right? That's right. Awesome. Yeah, uh, hanging out in Chicago. I just looking out that window. It's too dark now to see much of it, but you got a great view out that window. I can see city lights behind. And yeah, they're yeah. low. Yeah, it's a pretty good view. How high uh, up are you? We're on the twenty sixth floor. <laughs> oh, and, nice. Uh, we're looking towards the Chicago neighborhood of Lakeview. Nice. Uh, so we get and we, we get some pretty good sunsets out the window. So nice. <laughs> yeah. It's, Cool. That's really making me jealous. Okay, well then, let's get into the podcast. In the first segment, we always start with what's new with you, Brendan. Well, so last night I went for uh, looking for a new trail up by my place. Uh, it's only about a 10-minute drive from my house. Not and bad. I, uh, second time there, I went further up the trail, got spooked because I went there later, was there longer, found a cave, uh, <laughs> was afraid something might be living in the cave, and so that kind of freaked me out a little bit, so... I decided not to go into the cave, although I was very tempted. But I thought, you know, if I'm alone, I'm going to go into a dark cave. I don't want to go in alone without, like, a gun or something. Like, honestly, I want to have, I want to, like, a little you're, handgun. You're just going to start shooting <laughs> willy-nilly in the black? I hear a sound? No, <laughs> like, I had my light, but I was like, man, I don't feel safe, right? So, um, You don't know what gang colors are in there? what is in there. Cougar, bear, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to take any chances. So I didn't go in, um, but I did fall in the water on the way back. It's only like this tall, I thought you know? of Jordan only... Yance immediately when you told that story on Instagram. I'm like, I wonder if Jordan oh, saw that man. and if he's laughing too. He's here tonight, so he's probably it thinking about much, it. It was a much, much easier fall this time. M- much more than a 12, 15 foot drop. My camera was drop. actually in my bag and only my butt got wet. And so it was much, uh, much better this time. But uh, it's only about a foot, three foot drop, not like a 10 or 15 foot drop. Now, did any of your gear enter the water or nope. just you? Just me. Even my phone, my keys are totally dry in my front pockets. All right. Nice. Um, But I did get an amazing shot that I posted on my personal Instagram account. You guys can check that out. And uh, yeah, I I was totally worth it. Totally worth the fall and the scratches and stuff that I got on the way up. You were mentioning to me something beforehand. Do you want to mention it now that not everything survived that trip? Oh, I did drop my, my batteries did drop out of my camera. His battery grip loosened and came out. Yeah. The little sled that goes (laughs) in the battery grip, the extra battery grip slid out. On my hike back to my uh, to the to the front, so I don't know. It was uh, a lot of stuff happened that night, but I did, I I was really happy with the results of that one image that turned out really well. So awesome, you know, it's worth it. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. What's new with me, guys? Is I told you I was house sitting and had a dog, and now I feel like their dog is my dog. There's this awesome dog. Malamute husky that is just a beautiful dog, puppy, really well behaved. It's like seven I miss feet her. tall when it. Lit- 
It like, you know. <laughs> it's not that big. Just very hairy. Six foot tall dog, man. So Aaron King's <laughs> photography. We got a new YouTube video out. I'm stoked about that. I put out our Goblin Valley Day 10. If you haven't seen it yet, it was night number 10. We were out there with Phil Sisto. Check him out on Instagram, p.sisto.images. And man, it was a fantastic night. 15 full minutes in the YouTube video because there's just so much good content. And so I love that. I just feel good. I'm getting back in track with that. So that's what's new with me. And the dog I see is you. awesome. I just don't like the dog because of this. <laughs> It we got a hold of my hat. We lost a Photog Adventure hat, guys. So this was my favorite hat. Was, I have the same similar hat, but it's not the same <laughs> as my original now. It's Garden. awesome to catch up with you again, and I'm really excited to get into the Milky Way stuff and just hear how, how you're doing, what you're doing with it. But you went on an amazing trip out to Mount Whitney. Can you explain for those people around listening, okay, where's Mount Whitney? What is it like to go? You and your wife went and you were hiking. How many days were you doing, like, Boy Scout food? I mean, how'd you guys survive? What'd you guys do? <laughs> yeah, uh, so the the idea to hike Mount Whitney um, was Diana's. Um, she was the one who really pushed for it. And uh, I've, you know, I've done a couple backpacking trips myself. Diana and I both have done some backpacking trips together, um, but nothing really to that magnitude. Um, I wouldn't say that we're, you know, really great hikers and we, you know, we just go in the backcountry all the time. It's definitely <laughs> more of a special event. Um, so, you know, why not hike the tallest peak, uh, in the contiguous United States? Um, yeah. Mount Whitney is, it's north of Los Angeles about, uh, maybe three and a half to four hours depending on traffic. Okay. Um, and it is the tallest, uh, mountain in all of the 48 contiguous United States. Um, it's 14,491, oh, maybe 96 feet. There's a bunch right. of different around there. Funny thing about Mount Whitney too, when you see it, uh, it doesn't look like the tallest mountain at all. <laughs> right. There's many other very tall mountains, some of which are, are closer, uh, to you when you see it from the town of Lone Pine. Mm. And so Mount Whitney just looks like a couple little spiry rocks <laughs> in the distance. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't guess that it was the tallest one. It's it's definitely a challenging hike, but the interesting thing about it is that the entire path up to it is very well maintained. It's the most hiked really? trail in the entire uh, Sierra Nevada mountains. And mm. uh, because of that, it actually has like a rating of one. It's it's sort of considered a easy, a easy, easy wow. you know easy climb, if you will. It's would a, you say that's falsely advertised when you did it yourself? Uh, I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't say that that that's falsely advertised. But uh, there's some things to consider when hiking a a mountain like that. And the first and foremost one, and the one that we were concerned with the most, and the one that that affected us the most was. Uh, altitude mountain sickness, mm, uh, which is wow, being yeah. up at really high elevation, your body not getting enough oxygen, and and uh, that causes a whole bunch of different symptoms, uh, headache, fatigue, dizziness, um, you know, things that, that just wouldn't make hiking very pleasant. So, uh, you know, we, we basically, we took some measures to try and make sure that we weren't super affected by uh, altitude sickness, but it wasn't in Entirely successful, I guess. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, who got more sick? Uh, so there were there were different cases of it. Um, <laughs> on the very first day, Some I bears. felt uh, pretty terrible <laughs> going up. Like just 
first day was about six six and a half miles, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it 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 wasn't really like severe altitude sickness, but basically I could I could feel like in the back of my head my own heartbeat, mm. and it would you know with each pulse of my heartbeat mm-hmm. would be like a little headache. Oh um, man. And Weird. that, was, that was like the first onset of it. And what we ended up doing in order to mitigate it was just to hike really, really slowly. Um, so you still go up at that point. It's not smart to turn around? Uh, it depends on the, the degree of the symptoms. So whenever, you know, if it got too bad, we would basically stop and wait it out, wait for the headache to pass, drink some water, you know, eat a power bar or whatever. And, uh, you know, and you would, you would feel fine after that. It, you'd feel completely normal, you know, once you took a, took a little break and then we'd keep on hiking. The profile, if you look at the profile of the hike from Mount Whitney, it's literally straight up to the uh. summit and then like, and then straight down. You know, <laughs> um, it's the total elevation gain from the trailhead, I think is 6,000 feet. Oh, wow. And that's over, that's over, uh. uh 11 miles uh, wow. so feet up across 11 miles uh of trail distance wow uh you know so you spend some time up there uh take some photos obviously uh called my parents diana called or we called diana's parents too and uh because when you're up there you, you get you perfect cell signal cell phone, <laughs> yeah nice. so, so that was kind of like a treat you know it's kind of like a break we had just spent two days in the wilderness and then, you know, we get to call mom and, you know, yeah. so that's, that's kind of like a neat little thing. Yeah. And it, it was, it was it definitely a thing to do. Um, there were a couple other hikers up there, uh, that had just summited right before us. And, uh, you know, they were on Facebook chat or something like that, talking to their family. Um, so it was kind of cool to see, it was, you know, it's a neat little atmosphere once you get up there. And of course, once you get up there, it's a huge relief. You know, you, you just mm. spent the whole time with your, you know, your head kind of pounding and um, not necessarily like super exerted. You know, like you, it's not that you're you're out of breath, but you're fatigued. Your your muscles, you know, feel it uh, huh. a lot stronger. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's strange that the pace that we took, we never really got like out of breath. You could breathe just fine. It was just that with every breath, you're getting not quite as much oxygen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your muscles, your muscles feel feel that uh, right away. It's really yeah. funny that in an area like that, you're like, I'm getting away from it all. I'm gonna get done with all this technology, done with all this world. I'm gonna go hike, and then I get to the top of the mountain. I'm like, I got signal. <laughs> get on my phone, Facebook friends, chat, call parents, everyone at the top of the mountain. Ironically, was probably looking down at their phone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, was, I got I've got some photos of Diana looking at her phone. I was looking at my phone. Uh, I've got photos of other people looking at their phones. Um, yeah, that was just sort of the atmosphere. But the, the funny thing about it is that as soon as you you know you go down like a hundred feet and you're behind the crest of the the mountain, Sick you're back in the wilderness. You know, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're you're you've got another six miles to go down to camp, and you know you're worried about how much water you have. Uh, before you can refill, you know, at a nearby stream, and you're worried about whether or not your bear container is still at your camp, and it hasn't been carried away by marmots or by bears. Or, uh, yeah. Mm, well, what an know, interesting it, place. I mean, you've gone out to this location for the first time ever. When did you find time to do your photography that you've seen? We've seen your Milky Way shot from there. Where was that actually at, and when did you find time to do it? 
Yeah, so we definitely did not enter the, uh, we didn't start the trip with the intention of, of it being a photo trip. The first mm-hmm. goal was to be able to summit. You know, that was the first priority. Gotcha. So there were some compromises in what we brought. Um, I did not bring a big tripod. Um, Diana, actually, she packed this little guy. Yeah. It's a little Joby Ultrapod or uh, whatever it's called, Gorilla Pod. And, uh, you know, this was our sole tripod for the whole trip. And uh, I didn't pack anything in terms of camera gear except for my A7S um, and this little lens on it, which is a Voigtlander... uh, 35 millimeter f 2.5 lens. It's okay. it's almost a pancake. It's yeah. it's pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fully manual. Not great for astro. Uh, it's pretty aberration heavy. It's kind of an old you know old school film style lens. Yeah. Um, but it was small. Uh, I love the photos that come out of it during the daytime for sure. Um, and I did take a night photo with this. I ha- I haven't posted my night photo uh, made with this yet. Um, it's a little aberration heavy. Uh, but yeah this was my primary shooter for the whole time and i had this on uh just one of those peak design clips again on your backpack so i just had it like clipped to my shoulder uh the whole time we were hiking so as soon as i saw a moment you know uh diana hiking in the distance with the sun in the background or whatever i could clip unclip the thing uh frame it up and take a shot and then clip it right back on and um that was Something that I uh, I definitely didn't anticipate being so great is having that that peak design clip. Um, I think it's sort of completely changed the way that I want to shoot when I'm out, you know, out and really? about. Having the camera there is so nice. Not having it, you know, in the bag. You just start your outing and your camera's hanging on your on your shoulder. Seems like it would be cumbersome or something, but you you forget that it's there. Really. And as soon as you need it, it's. It's, right you know, yeah. it's a little button press away, and you unclip it, and it's ready to go. Hmm. Um, Would you do that with a larger mirrored camera, like a Canon 5D Mark IV, or only with something like that compre- com, you know, compact mirrorless Sony? Um, I would probably consider doing it with, with a 5D. Um, I think that that would be fine. It Really, the way that it hangs on your shoulder, um, it just puts all of the, the weight on the strap, so you don't really feel it. Um, and if it's positioned just kind of like right under your collarbone, it's, it, it's, it's somehow super comfortable. You, you just don't notice it's, it's there. Hmm. Um, I, I'd have no hesitation hanging a, a big, you know, big lens off of it or, wow. you know, whatnot. Um, it's yeah. funny how the, oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. What were you saying right there? Um, yeah, oh. uh, just, just that it, it was a really cool piece of equipment. It's something that we picked up right before the hike. Um, and I did, you know, I, I saw it and I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. I've seen a couple other photographers using it. Um, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity to try it out. And I'm like, now that's all I want to use to carry my camera around. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy how just a bag can be a huge deterrent of just getting your camera out and taking the shot. You're thinking, well, let's make mm-hmm. it really worth it. Even though the bag is not that hard to open, even mine has that swing around, mind shift, you know, sw- mm-hmm. shifting bag point a portion that will come out in front of me and still I don't pull it out that often right and so yeah maybe there is that psychology if anything just keeping it right there on your shoulder is brilliant right. 
And yeah. it doesn't bounce too much. You didn't have a pain with that. It didn't feel weird. You kind of forgot about it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget about it. It was pretty cool. Um, so I, I packed pretty light, uh, you know, preparation-wise. Um, I ended up taking the bear container um, up, which is like this kind of big tub, big plastic tub that's kind of hard to open. Bears can't get into it. Mm. Um, and that had a full four days' worth of food in it. Okay. Plus we had four liters of water, uh, obviously our tent, um, sleeping bag, sleeping pad, little inflatable pillow, you know, all the essentials. We ended up using pretty much every single thing we brought, which is mm. good. You don't yeah. want to bring anything that you don't end up using, except maybe your first aid kit. Right. Uh, and we didn't even really have to use a first aid kit. I used a couple alcohol swabs out of it to clean some stuff, but um, other than that, uh, we luckily didn't have any injuries or anything like nice. that. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Overall, what was the amount of miles that you walked and hiked? Uh, so the total path from trailhead to summit is 22 miles. Um, we did a couple extra miles in there just based on where we camped because we kind of camped off the beaten track. And uh, so I'd probably estimate that we did between maybe 23 and 25 miles total wow. for the full four days that we we were out there um so it's not too reasonable when you when you spread that out over three days of hiking and then we had one day of rest in the middle there right after we summited oh right on wow. okay so i'm pulled up your pictures so brendan can see them mm -hmm. and see them on your facebook here you guys who are watching facebook live will just have to go to ian norman's page but uh, i'm looking at one of the first milky way shots you shared where you see in the opposite side of the milky mm -hmm. way you got andromeda galaxy in the in the sagittarius constellation out there or sagittarius cassiopeia cassiopeia <laughs> and your shot in this area it looks it's so barren it's very mm. another planet type of area mount mount whitney is this right off the trail or did you hike somewhere yeah. to get to it uh so this is this is about 15 feet maybe from our tent and our tent was off the trail a little bit um mm. maybe about a thousand feet off the trail um a little hard to get to it's kind of down some rocks um and we were camping uh about a couple hundred feet from the edge of Consultation Lake, which is one of the largest lakes up uh, on the Mount Whitney Trail. And uh, it's above the tree line. So this photo was made at 12,000 feet, roughly, maybe 12,500 feet. Really? And, uh, yeah, it's basically just all rock around you. Um, there's a little bit of grass, maybe a couple wildflowers here and there, um, but no trees. Uh, maybe the occasional snow patch if you look in a you know kind of a nook, and, nook or cranny in the in the rocks. Wow. Um, and that shot was actually made on the A7 Mark III, which is Diana's camera. Um, so Diana was oh, okay. Diana was actually packing a little heavier when it came to photography gear. Um, she took the A7 Mark III and grab it here uh and of course our one of our favorite lenses the zeiss Batis. Uh -huh. um and uh it's a the 18 millimeter f 2.8 um so i uh asked permission to use a camera grabbed it um and just set it on a rock with the gorilla pod um and took a bunch of exposures i was primarily interested in getting um 
kind of, I don't know, testing the camera out. Um, it's something that uh, it, I haven't used the A7 Mark III for a whole lot of night photography yet. I did a little bit in Menorca when we were at the PhotoPills camp, but I just wanted to make sure, you know, make sure that it's kind of up to snuff. I, I want to put together a, a review of it eventually on Lonely Spec. Um, nice. So <laughs> this really was, it was sort of like just a test shot. And uh, one of the cool things that I, I really liked about that shot was uh, there's a lot of air glow in it. Yeah, yeah. We actually have it up right now for the Facebook feed too. So you can feel free to look at it and describe it even a little bit more in detail because we're able to yeah. see it. But we can see that air glow quite strong under the Andromeda mm -hmm. galaxy there. Yeah. And so um, when you're out there at night, you know, it's just pitch black, um, very, very little light pollution. The only light pollution that's, that's at all visible would have been exactly in the direction that this photograph was taken. I think if you look right at sort of the the, uh, the saddle of the mountains, there's a tiny little white light. And I think that light is somewhere near the, the trailhead. And it's oh, probably okay. down down at Alabama Hills where uh, where the near where the trailhead is. Oh, cool. Um, but other than that, there was basically no extra light. But for some reason, looking out on the horizon, your eyes, they can see something. You know, there's 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 definitely light in the sky um, and that was all that air glow uh, kind of on the horizon and that's what gives that image sort of uh, gives it a green tinge to yeah, it yeah. Um, and that's always kind of a treat I, I like it when I can get a little bit of air glow uh, in the shot oh yeah um, and it takes a very dark location to get it in mm -hmm. a clean air it just looks fantastic and I mean with most Milky Way shots you're getting a galaxy in frame and this sort, this side of the Milky Way, you're getting two galaxies in frame, and it's just awesome. The way the clarity you're seeing, Andromeda Galaxy, it's, it's looking really fantastic. Cool. Yeah. And it's just so mysterious and otherworldly, this whole scene. So I'm loving that. You've also got another picture of the Milky Way coming off that you recently posted, but without seeing the information, um, is this picture uh, Mount, Mount Whitney? It does say Mount Whitney. On the way back down from the summit yeah. of Mount Whitney, we found ourselves hiking, and so you have a full Milky Way core right here. Um, what's this shot? Was just the same night? Yeah, so uh, it is the same night. To give a little bit of context, um, so when we got to the summit, we ended up there at about 7 p.m. Uh, the sun was still out. You know, I mean, it's summer, but that didn't give us very much time to get back before dark. We still had a full five miles to go, uh, and about 2,500 feet to descend. So uh, we ended up hiking back in the dark. And, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. In, uh, Classic. On the, on the hike up to the summit uh, or back from the summit, there are uh, what they call the 97 switchbacks. Sometimes they call it the 99 switchbacks. It, it sort of depends on how, you, how you're counting it, mm, whether okay. you're counting the beginnings or the ends or whatever. Oh, um, okay. So we were descending the 97 switchbacks uh, in the pitch dark, and at first, you know, all you all you're sort of thinking about is, oh, you know, don't trip on the rocks. What's that weird sound over there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, let's let's get down the mountain. Um, but it's you know it's hard to ignore the fact that you're out in the wilderness and all the stars are out. Um, and so uh, we we stopped to to kind of bundle up, put some extra layers on uh, as it was getting colder. And I was like, Diana, I think we gotta we gotta take some knife photos. You know, we're we're out here. We gotta take some knife photos now. Oh and, yeah. Uh, 
so we were like, okay, you know, we'll get out the A7 uh, Mark III, get out the Gorilla Pod, sit on a rock, and uh, I took a couple of shots, kind of, kind of in the same direction as that that one airglow shot of Andromeda. Um, wasn't super satisfied with those, so obviously turned it over to the right and looked at the galactic core, and uh, it's basically just a shot uh, looking uh, looking back up the the switchbacks. Um, towards the galactic core, so you can see the you know the, the crest of the mountains there, and and um, you know I mean relatively simple composition. I, I sort of right. was just working with where I was at the time. You know, it's sort of a it was a shot in the moment as we were descending. Yeah. Um, well, everyone not, wants to have a shot in the moment that looks like this. So fantastic job. <laughs> I did like this shot in particular because you could see the uh, the snow. That was still oh, on the mountain. Um, it sort of gave right. gave the foreground, you know, a little bit of, of, of texture, you know, something to look at. And um, yeah. it's one of those it's one of those things that I think is interesting because it's so dark out there. There's no way I couldn't see that snow. You know, it, it, it was one of those things that you, you don't realize is there until you see it on the back of the LCD. And I think that's just sort of a you know we we can say that about pretty much anything uh, photography related when we're when we're shooting the Milky Way is right camera becomes an extension of our eyes it lets us see those things that we you know we can't otherwise see you know i was in a in a bubble of just my headlamp and what i could see in the in the five feet in front of me you know diane and i both we you know we're just kind of walking through the dark in this little bubble of light and then you take a moment you turn off your headlamp your eyes adjust uh you take a shot and and suddenly you have some uh you know, some context to where you are and um you know, I think that that's that's something that's pretty special, and we wouldn't we wouldn't get that without having taken a photograph of it. Well, that's a special yeah. moment just in the entire experience, all of the adventure, and then to have it get that little exclamation mark of I got a Milky Way shot down here, looking really awesome over at the right. weaker end of the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy, and then you get the galactic core on the, the other side of you. I mean, that's a really really freaking awesome hike back. Now, classic not having a headlamp with you. What happened? Uh, no, 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 I did. I did have a head, yeah. headlamp with me. Um, you just didn't use them. I guess I missed that part. Why you guys were hiking in the in such a dark situation? Uh, well, I, I, you know, the conditions were dark, um, and mm. you know, we hiked basically until until we couldn't see anymore. Um, you know, until we we started being like, uh, you know, how far is this step down uh, <laughs> off the truck? Um, and, yeah. you know, and then you know, we took some time and 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 brought out the headlamps. We did have headlamps with us uh, with us charged extra batteries and good, good. oh okay i mean this is lonely spec after all i mean the guy recommends it all the time <laughs> i imagine he has one but that's awesome yeah. so yeah. then let's go ahead and take a quick break from talking about this story and segue from milky way pictures into milky way advice because we have a lot of people here awake with us right now hanging out with us online and we have some questions that came from earlier today so we'll take a quick break in the podcast and we'll come right back with ian norman Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everyone. Tonight, we're hanging out with Milky Way master guru, Ian Norman. He is trying to kick off Royce Bear from the top of the mountain with the most popular podcast right now. <laughs> Ian was the most popular podcast. is episode 22 for a year plus. And then Royce Bear had to come in on episode 75 or 6 and took the reign. He's the reigning champion now. So share this with your guys' followers, listeners, and friends. We'll make Ian Norman get back on top, even though we love Royce. So he's okay. <laughs> 
okay if he's on top right now. Yeah, yeah, it's okay if he's on top. <laughs> so we have a lot of people who love Milky Way photography, Ian, and so we have a ton of questions about Milky Way photography. And we'll start off with something that we've been talking about a lot lately, and so let's just hit it up quickly. Do you ever track and stack? That comes from Ryan Luna. Uh, I did. I used to. Oh, what's the what's the uh, reason to stop? Um, so, so I, I've got a couple different trains of thought on the idea of tracking, um, and it sort of depends on what you're going for. Mm. Um, there are priorities to uh, keep in order, I suppose, when it comes to something like this. Uh, one of them is gear related. A tracker weighs something. It, it you know <laughs> yeah. usually weighs about a camera plus. Um, some of the smaller ones like the Vixen Polari or the Ioptron, uh, Sky Tracker, uh, they're relatively small, but they, they're, they're still beefy, you know, it's, it's a all metal gear train in those things and they have like metal housings and they've, mm-hmm. they've got to be able to support a cantilevered weight. Um, and, uh, so, so that's one dis- one deciding factor um, that, that I heavily factor into whether or not I want to use a tracker. Mm. Um, uh, for a while, I used a Vixen Polari, and uh, I got really good results with it. Um, I was using that with my Canon 6D, um, and it allowed me to do exposures you know, easily up to five minutes uh, with, with decent uh, polar alignment. And <laughs> that comes to another point. Uh, polar alignment <laughs> is annoying. Uh, it's harder it than it looks, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you think, like, oh, I just need to point it at the North Star and we'll be good. Aligned. Uh, Done. But there's other, you know, there's other factors that go into that. It's like you're, you're trying to both polarly align uh, and then be able to co- compose a photograph from it. Um, it's oh, fine right. if you're just doing, you know, like a wide field of the sky um, and you're just getting sky and you're not really worried about anything sort of foreground thing, but um, when you're trying to do a wide-angle shot where you're tracking the stars for briefly and then you stop the tracker and then maybe you expose to the foreground, um, there's a lot more variables in there because you've got to have your ball head situated such that you can still aim your camera where you want it to be and it's still aligned with the North Star. So there's, there's things to move and things to bump in the dark and uh, you know that adds complexity to your setup time. Um, sometimes I just want to shoot you know, uh, spend 30 seconds setting it up, take my shot, move on to a different composition, um, and, and not really worry about, uh, you know, getting perfect polar alignment and, you know, how long can I shoot before my stars start to trail uh, with the track? You know, can I go a full five minutes? So oh, let's test it out, you know. And then 20 minutes later, you're just starting your, your, your first real exposure. Um, so that was kind of a big factor that weighed into whether or not I would use a tracker. Um, now that said, um, I recently used the Pentax K1 Mark II hmm. and that camera has a built-in, uh, tracking function on it. Oh, uh, they yeah, call it tracer. Yeah, yeah. It's in the yeah. sensor, right? It actually will tilt. Is that where yep. it tracks from or is, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uses the, uh, the, you know, the five axis image stabilization system in, in the camera. Um, it has a built-in GPS uh, and accelerometer, so the camera knows where it's pointed in the sky. 
uh, really <laughs> cool feature. I thought that it would be quirky and would require lots of setup, like uh, you know, like a normal Star Tracker. Mm-hmm. Um, but darn, it's good. It's <laughs> really. I I was I was blown away by how easy it was to use. You literally just you go to bold mode uh, in the camera, and then you press the GPS button. And that turns on the GPS, and it knows, okay, I'm in bulb. You have a GPS on. Let's do Astro Tracer. Um, so it, it, it says Astro Tracer on it, and then you just take your shot. Uh, you can program up to five minutes. And uh, I, I didn't even mess around with calibration. I just let the camera do what it could do internally. It never prompted me, oh, you know, you need to calibrate or anything like that. I didn't bother doing the, you know, any of the compass calibration or accelerometer calibration on it. Um, I just let it go. And so you did an exposure for five minutes? Did you you can do an exposure for five minutes. I think it a full five minutes would require uh, a lo- being a little bit lucky on the calibration. Okay. And okay. Using, using probably um, a fairly uh, fairly long, you know, in terms of landscape photography, fairly long lens, something like 50 millimeters yeah. Between 15 millimeters and 85, maybe 135 millimeters. Um, because with that uh, long of a focal length, you're not as worried about uh, things like rectilinear distortion or the projection style of your lens. Um, so by moving the flat plane of your sensor, it's actually going to be able to emulate the, the rotation of the Earth fairly well with, with that narrow of a lens. Wow. Um, it becomes a little more difficult when you start using wide angles. Um, I was using a 15 millimeter uh, lens, uh, like 15 to 30 uh, Pentax lens, and when you're that wide and you have like a really, really big field of view, the the motion of the stars doesn't end up being uh, perfectly linear um, across the frame, uh, oh, just in okay. terms of, uh, of of speeds and and distances um, visually on the on the image. Um, so you end up getting a little bit of trailing on the corners. But in the center of the image, it makes a really, really sharp image. And I was able to use that 15-millimeter uh, lens and still make uh, you know, a two-minute, three-minute exposure with almost no star trailing. Wow, jeez. Um, yeah, it was, I, I was really, really impressed by it. And well, obviously, see- there's, there's the trade-off there because you're making you know, this wide-angle exposure and it's tracking the stars as they're moving across the sky. So your foreground's going to blur out a little yeah. bit. Yeah, um, definitely. So you, then you, you turn the GPS off, and you take the same shot. And right. then you'll, you'll have your, your foreground uh, nice and sharp. And then you know it's a matter of bringing it into Photoshop and doing the uh And your camera didn't move, thing. too, so you don't have to go Put back to position. Nothing. Right, that's yeah, awesome. that's... Okay, well, you guys are so sneaky with your gear questions that happened without even talking oh, about yeah. gear. So I just linked in the Facebook uh, comments his article on the Pentax K1 Mark II. So th- is awesome. there going to be a Lonely Spec YouTube video about it, or are you just going to stick with the blog article? Uh, I actually am putting together a video. It's going to be a little bit different. I kind of made it kind of vloggy, actually. I've taken <laughs> a few of you guys. Yes. Uh, we talked about that last year. Uh, I was hoping to see more you know, of it. Yeah, I've just got some thoughts about the camera, uh, what it's like to use. Um, I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Pentax deserves a little bit of love in the photography community. They are they are very much an underdog when it comes to, oh, to yeah, gear. Really we are. talk about our Canons and our Nikons and our Sonys now, um, but Pentax is, is steadily making 
uh, genuinely good cameras. And, um, you know, the, the, the K1 Mark II did not get a favorable review on DP Review. Um, I talked with some of the editors there, too, about some of the issues that that camera does have. And I, mm. I talk about those issues in my review as okay. well. But in the grand scheme of things, when it comes down to uh, making landscape photographs, it's, it's a tremendous camera. Um, mm. And, I, you know, I, I wholeheartedly recommend that, that system. It, it was just a joy to use. Um, you know, it's got its quirks like everything else. You know, you can find its it, you yeah. know, quibbles with, with, with the system. Yeah. Seriously, um, but it offers some things that nobody else has. Uh, Astro Tracer, uh, pixel shift resolution, which is coming to a few other cameras here and there. Um, it has that as well, hmm. um, and and it executes uh, most of those things pretty darn well. And uh, yeah, you know, I was impressed. So yeah, tracking. Uh, I guess the I guess the conclusion is it it, it all depends on you know what what you want to uh, where you want to spend. Uh, in terms mm. of time or weight, you know, in your gear, yeah, and that's uh, a big, you know, yeah. if you're looking for that refinement in image quality, that that really fine pixel detail down to where your stars are perfect pinpoints, you have excellent color detail, low noise. Uh, I mean, it, it's really hard to beat a tracker, mm. um, you know, when it comes down to that really fine detail. Oh yeah, you could see it in today's Goblin Valley video from us, where you show mine and Brendan's shot, and then you see Phil Sisto's tracked shot. And yeah. I didn't even waste time on a full wide view of it. I zoomed in and spent seven seconds panning mm. on just the cool detail that he has, and then pulled out to his full shot. That's how good it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a pixel peepers tool. You know, if, if you <laughs> want that that refinement, then you know by all means, um, it's you know it's the only real method to really pull that off. Sure, you could maybe try and stack like a whole bunch of one-second exposures or something right. really short. You're going to have zero trailing. But then you're talking about gigabytes and gigabytes of data and lots and lots of processing time. Mm. So, you know, are you going to spend your time setting up the tracker uh, in the field and getting a shot right out of the camera? Right. Or are you going to have to spend the time, you know, arduously uh, waiting for your, your uh, I'm sorry, your computer to process? <laughs> right, yeah. right. You know, um, it's always a trade-off. You're going to spend the time somewhere. Awesome. Yeah, well, I was going to go into the stacking part too, but I'll just leave that for later. We'll see if we have time for it after that. Sorry about that. Um, that was Ryan's question. But David asks us, so have you ever done Gigapano like Milky Way shots? And do you do anything? In his words, he's curious about those giant panos with non-wide lenses. Now, he didn't call mm -hmm. it a gino pano. I'm adding that because, you know, if you do like a 50 millimeter, 35 millimeter tight, Type panorama, it's going to be like a giga panel almost. But do you do anything with that? There's not much info out there on whether people do those kind mm, of panoramas. So like Have you megapixels or more kind of? Resolution. Yeah, pull yeah. out your hundred yeah. millimeter and then just shoot a bunch of shots and stitch them together as a giga panel. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I haven't done it. How about you, Ian? Uh, so personally, um, I have done some very large panels before, um, and personally, it. I, I guess I tend to prefer slightly narrower fields of view, you know, um, for, for the pano itself. Yeah. Uh, rather than making something that's, you know, like a whole sky pano with a 50 mil where you've got, you know, yeah, like literally a gigapixel image. Um, there, are, there are a couple of photographers that, uh, that are worth looking at. Um, Mark G is actually one of them. He has some 
yeah. some uh, pretty awesome like whole sky panoramas. Oh, cool! Uh, so check out some of his work. And then I need to see uh, there's another uh, Kiwi, another New Zealander guy, uh, Paul Wilson. Uh, if you've ever seen any, I've of seen his, some of his stuff. Yeah, absolutely spectacular. He likes to use a 50 mil, sometimes a 35 millimeter lens. Uh, with a gigapan robot, and uh, he shoots a lot of these really, really intricately detailed whole sky panoramas. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, it's his work is impressive. Um, yeah, check out Paul Wilson's stuff. <laughs> well, right on, Dave. So check out Paul Wilson. He said there was a lot of information out there, but maybe Paul Wilson has it. You mentioned gigapan robot. Does that mean it's kind of automatically taking the shots for him? Because that's the challenge yeah. I would think is making sure yeah, you go fast it enough. Yeah, requires a, a little setup, you know. But he, he probably has his lens programmed in, into it, and mm. you know, um, I imagine he has this program set up pretty easily so that he can just like places, you know, get get the stuff set up and hit go. Um, right. and, uh, you know, the robot will do the shooting for him. Um, just a matter of like moving your body so that it's not photographing you. Once <laughs> right. And you got, I got to figure you got to do something like that. If you're going to do it, it's because you got to go so fast. Yeah. Milky Way is moving already. When I'm doing my 15, 26 image panels, it still moves enough. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to add it an extra more challenge, but, uh, I'm doing it at 24 millimeters. So I'm not that zoomed out. Mm. Sam mentions right here back on our last topic that he read your article a few weeks ago, Ian, about the Pentax K1 and you sold him on it. He's actually going to be oh, getting right. one around the holidays for next season. So he's excited about it. So nice. you got yeah. Sam, Sam's convinced. So then going back, to the questions from the listeners we have a question asking you uh, if, would you ever consider shooting the milky way from a hot air balloon is that even possible <laughs> now he brings it up because of your previous mm. video that you did shooting from a plane and he's right. like well a hot air balloon hmm. yeah i feel like a hot air balloon would work pretty well um there'd be like a couple things to think about uh i don't know how bright is that flame you know on the hot air balloon true your uh, local light pollution yeah, right there source Potentially, hmm. and uh, and then how still, you know, how still can you? Obviously, you're flying when the air is relatively still, mm -hmm. but how still can you actually be? And uh, yeah. is there is there like a decent way to, I guess, hold your camera? Maybe you could put it on a gimbal, put your camera on a gimbal stabilizer, oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, do your long exposure from there, and it, it might be one of the same processes, uh, just like shooting it from an airplane where you take a whole bunch of frames and kind of see what sticks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't be possible as long as you have some, you know, method of stabilization. So that's probably how I would approach it is, is using a gimbal. I think that that would set you up, you know, for the best way to do it. And I, you know, I mean, if you can be, if, if you're daring enough, I guess, you'd be <laughs> yeah. in, a in, in a pitch black, uh, <laughs> I brought that up, you know, uh, then you might as well bring your camera and take some photos. Absolutely. Sure. John, John's in Oregon. I, we haven't been out with him out on Cape Kiwanda and he went out with us along the coast. He was there at Thor's well with us and mm -hmm. he, he would be awesome to go out and just test this. Let's just do it, John. Let's just go out <laughs> and test this, but we have to go somewhere where there's nothing to worry about flying a hot air balloon in the dark mm. because that's going to be the hardest part staying alive. So that's cool. That's a way to consider it. I'm going to go past Kirk's Sony question because that'll lead into more gear. We'll come back to that. And here it is. Let's get into the processing segment. Uh, Cheryl asks us, well, is there a super simple way, very few keystrokes to reduce noise in Lightroom or Photoshop? Anything that you prefer? I know Brennan has one. Few keystrokes. Um, 
personally, uh, I will admit that I never use uh, noise reduction in Lightroom. Uh, I really don't. Um, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one of those is uh, your camera is usually pretty darn good at getting rid of noise. Um, if you are worried about it, uh, the the thing that I, I, I suppose really irks me when it comes to noise is not necessarily like the base grain, the sort of regular random noise that you see in there that I tend to I tend to like that a little bit. You know, it, it gives your photo some texture, some some uh, you know something real about it. Yeah, I don't mind the, it either. The randomness of, of of your camera, the process. But when it comes to uh, hot pixels, fixed pattern noise, mm. uh, sensor bloom, or whatever you want to call it, electronic heat noise, um, those that's the type of noise that I, I really hate and. Um, Hot pixels in particular, one of the easiest ways to get rid of those is with the dust and scratches filter. I was just say yeah. Filter, noise, dust and scratches, mm -hmm. I think is how you get I to. learned it from you in your tutorial. <laughs> yeah. Now you gotta be careful with the dust dust and scratches because it will eat stars. Exactly. Uh, right. Kind of like a Sony camera on fold. And uh so you have to do a selection of your uh, foreground or you know wherever wherever the noise is that you want to reduce, and uh, yeah, filter, noise, dust and scratches. Um, usually a a pixel resolution on on the, that filter between two and three pixels, and then a threshold between about twenty and forty will usually get you where you need to go um, without completely degrading your uh, the detail in the image. Uh, but you know it'll actually re remove a lot of those hot pixels. Um, in terms of you know like sliders in Lightroom, one really uh, useful tool when it comes to denoising is to use the uh, use the Alt key when you're when you're adjusting the slider in Lightroom. Um, that'll give you a like a, a monochrome preview of how it's affecting the noise. So you don't have the sort of bias of, of the colors affecting your, your vision when you're actually analyzing you know, how much noise mm -hmm. it's reducing. Um, and there's also the, the masking feature on it. And if you hold down alternate while you're adjusting the masking feature, um, you can, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's on, that's on sharpening. Um, but it, 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 it goes hand in hand. Um, if you are sharpening your image in Lightroom and there is noise present, It'll automatically sharpen all the noise too, so yeah, we will accentuate yeah. it. So, to, in order to sort of just focus on sharpening the edges, you can adjust that masking slider, um, and holding down the alternate key, it'll it'll show you what it's actually affecting in white, and uh, you know that that gives you a better visual representation of where the sharpening is being applied. So you're not just applying it to the noisy areas. Um, so yeah, those are. Couple things to check out. Yeah, that's awesome advice. We've even got another question that asked the same thing that you answered right there of building off of it, I guess you should say, because Nicole's wondering instead of just dust and scratches to get away from hot pixels, do you ever do a dark frame? Do you ever work with a dark frame? Oh. Yeah, um, that is a good question. Um, and I've also found that uh, sometimes the sometimes dark frames don't entirely get rid of the, that noise, but 
when I'll use a dark frame is usually when I see uh, some sort of sensor bloom, like mm -hmm. the kind of that, that pinkish glow that you can get, especially on warm nights, um, or if, if you're using a, a lens slightly stopped down, um, you know, and you're, and you're really pushing your ISO up. Um, in those cases, I'll consider taking dark frames. So my typical uh, wide-angle photo setup, what I do for every shot, what I did for those shots that uh, we shared earlier, is I'll have my camera set up in, in one spot, uh, figure out my, my exposure settings. It's usually about around 15 seconds, 20 seconds, maybe f2.8 at ISO 3200, right? That's, that's roughly a typical Milky Way exposure. Um, and then I'll just take a bunch of shots. I'll like let the camera either run on an intervalometer or I'll sit there and I'll press the button after each, uh, each exposure and I'll collect a, a bunch of data essentially. I'm collecting a whole bunch of the same image. Um, it's very important to actually collect different exposures of the same, uh, same composition. And uh, I usually shoot for eight exposures minimum, um, maybe 16 if I have plenty of time. And after that, after I'm, I'm done shooting, uh, maybe I've done a couple different compositions. I've uh, you know repositioned my camera, taken some vertical shots, some landscape shots, whatever. Um, when I'm done with that spot or I'm, I'm done for the night, I'll put the lens cap on and I will shoot just as many frames as I was shooting before of just the lens cap in the same settings. Sometimes I'll stop the lens down just to make sure I'm not getting any light whatsoever in the lens. But mm. as long as your ISO setting and your shutter speed setting are the same for those dark frames, uh, you're gonna have the right type of data in order to subtract them later. Gotcha, and, interesting. Yeah. And huh. you can do that at the end of the night. You don't really have to worry about doing that after every single you know composition or whatever. Right, just right. At the end of the night, take your 16 dark frames, you know, you can put your camera in your bag I was gonna say, or something. Yeah. yeah. Your lens cap's and, on, you could yeah. be hiking back to the car and just clicking away. Right. And and those dark frames, uh, you can then use in your stacks uh, later on when you do your post-processing. Um, if you're a Mac user and use Starry Landscape Stacker, it will automatically recognize those dark frames if you pull them in when you, when you load your images oh, into really? it. Uh, It'll, it'll find the dark frames and it'll automatically subtract them. That tends to work really well. Um, mm. But yeah, like I said, I don't do it all the time. It's, mm -hmm. it's only when uh, I'm concerned about noise, maybe I'm stopping down, maybe I'm having to push my ISO a little bit high, um, or I'm using a slower lens. Um, sometimes I like to stop down. Like if I want really sharp, really, really sharp uh, stars, I'll use a short exposure to minimize star trails and I'll stop it down to f4 maybe even f5.6 if I'm feeling ambitious. <laughs> and those are the cases when I'll use uh, dark frames. Oh, okay. Right on. So guys, I have allowed us to go three minutes over if you can read numbers backwards, then <laughs> you guys could verify that information. <laughs> I have a couple questions in here that are good segues into some <laughs> you did upside down, upside down and reverse. Good segues into talking about <laughs> gear, but you just mentioned Star Landscape Stacker, so let's end on that note mm. for this segment. And then I have one from Sam that has just recently written it that we're going to tackle, Sam, at the very end of the segment and the last segment before we let Ian go because it'll be a great topic for all of us, especially Brandon and I. And so we'll have that question here. But let's go into the oh, weeds man. a little bit on Star Landscape Stacker right now, and then we'll go into our last break of the podcast. 
So Cheryl says, in Starry Landscape Stacker, when I export images as TIFF files, then stack in SLS, my files are saved on my desktop. In order to edit in Lightroom after SLS stacking process, I must make a new catalog to go through the LR import process. Why? Did she make a new catalog? I'm not sure she means catalog there, but I'd be curious if she was. Hmm. Uh, go through the Lightroom import process. Is there a way to have the SLS stacked images saved directly to the Lightroom catalog of origin that doesn't wipe out? Okay, this sounds more like a Lightroom question, oh. honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead and tackle it, Ian, if you understand yeah, it yeah. enough. Uh, so uh, it's not, it sounds like the process is, is roughly the same as what I do. Uh, I'll go into Lightroom, maybe do some very basic edits like with exposure or white balance. Uh, then I'll export those images from doing a stack. I'll export all of those images with those edits applied uh, to TIFF. I usually use uh, 16 bits per component just to make sure I've got like all the raw data there, yeah. um, and uh, and then import them into SLS. Uh, do the Starry Landscape Stacker stacking process, and Starry Landscape Stacker then will prompt you when you're finished to save your file. Um, as a TIFF, I think by default. Um, and what I do is I usually just save it onto my desktop. And then uh, in order to get it back into Lightroom to do final edits, I will just uh, go to Lightroom and hit import, and I will select my desktop as the, the source. Um, now you just have, you have to make sure you're in the library tab. Before yeah. you import, because if you're in develop tab, it won't show you the import button. Right. So just yeah, to, yeah, right from the library right. tab, uh, go to import. I'm looking at it here just so I don't, okay. uh, <laughs> you know, I don't misquote. Right, because you're quoting um, user interface right there. Right. So so when you're in the import dialog, uh, there's there's some options uh, for how Lightroom wants to import the it's photo. Not very clean interface wise. It could be better. Yeah, it's sort of like your, your 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 source is on the left and your destination is on the right. Right. So in the source, I will select my desktop. I will go and uh, navigate through my desktop on a Mac. Go to Macintosh HD users, my username, and then the desktop folder. And in there, it should show me a preview of the image that is on my desktop. Right. That I had just saved from Starry Landscape Stacker, and then at the top in the center of that dialog. Uh, there's a there's four options: copy as DMG, copy, move, and add. Right. Now I don't care to leave that on my desktop, um, so what I do is I just select move typically, okay. and uh, I use that, and then I add it to my catalog as usual in the normal location that my catalog usually imports to, um, and that will import it into your catalog and. Uh, also move that file in adjacent to the files uh, that you used as the source too. Um, so it'll actually put it in the correct file, um, you know, based on data or however you're having Lightroom organize it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have everything together. The files are together. It should show up properly uh, in sequence with your Lightroom catalog if you're sorting it by capture date. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers the question. Oh, I'm sure that it sounds, does. That sounds about right to me. Absolutely. I, I don't think she needs to create a whole new catalog to do that. New catalog. Yeah. 
and she gets a chance to work with it in her workflow. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Let's end it with one real quick response. This will be a fast one. It is to the question about the dark frames and noise reduction. I know my answer, but let's just ask you, Ian, since he wanted to ask you. Graham was curious about using your in-camera noise reduction with 30-second shots Mm -hmm. at all. Right. Um, So most cameras have two different types of noise reduction. Um, The the first one is usually called like high ISO noise reduction or just noise reduction. Um, And that is essentially similar to what a program like Lightroom would do if you like dragged up the noise reduction slider on Lightroom. Um, It's going to take your image and it's going to sort of soften the details where it's noisy to try and like blur it a little bit to make it look less noisy. And uh, that's the type of noise reduction that you want to disable for the most part in camera. Um, If you're shooting in raw, many cameras won't even actually apply it. Even even if it were enabled, it won't actually affect the raw file. Um, But depending on the camera manufacturer, I think Fuji is one of them um, where if you have that enabled, it will actually noise reduce the raw file so you want to turn that off and the reason that you want to do that is because it doesn't usually do a great job um, and that's one of those jobs that uh, Lightroom does a much better job mm. at for sure um, or even an external software like uh, I mean Nick Collection yeah. does it and yeah or there's uh, Noise Ninja there's all, kind, Topaz, there's all kinds of yeah. alright nerds quit talking about this we're done no more <laughs> there's lots of good options guys out there and especially dealing with it in post is your best bet oh, yeah. always yeah. turn it off in yeah. your camera don't worry about your camera and just deal with it in post if you even do it Ian is a man of my own heart because I just I don't really mind the noise I hate hot pixels I hate the weird sensor burn noises and purpling that happens yeah. but Empty. when it comes to yeah. just a little texture love it let's do it so let's get into you guys favorite gear thing after this last break in the audio but for Facebook live you're gonna hang with us as we actually take a break because I think I'm going to have a blood clot in my leg if I don't get up (laughs) so let's get out of here hey guys welcome back to the photog adventures podcast Uh, now we're gonna talk about gear time and uh, we've got Ian here as our guest so Aaron you've got some questions for gear time what can you offer us? I can offer you a question from Kirk Kais, uh, our very okay. own member of Photog Adventures. He talks about Drew Armstrong's recent new purchase, the A7R3. Oh, now, yes. here's a question that has two parts, Ian. The R3, not the S3, the R3. Exactly. See, Kirk asked the question. <laughs> Ian pulls it up and holds the A7R3 right in front of us. Now, that is the R3, right? Not the S3? Uh, this is the uh, A7 Mark III. A7 Mark III. So another another an A7, A7 series. A7, well, so what's the difference between the straight A7R and the S? Do you know? What Might the as well start is? there if you have that answer. Uh, yeah, okay. So, well, Sony is still producing their first generation Alpha camera. Okay. Uh, so you can still buy the original A7 uh, that, you know, their first full frame mirrorless camera. Okay. And now you can buy their piece. The A7R Mark III, you know, multiple iterations down the line. Um, and basically the take-home point is the the base A7, the, the A7 or the A7 Mark II, the A7 Mark III, um, that's, that's going to be their sort of best-selling range. It's like their lower-tier, you know, entry 
entry level, I guess, okay. if you will. Okay. Um, and it's like the jack of all trades. It's kind of having like a great autofocus system and, you know, you know, generally good low light performance. Um, but it's not going to have like the really uh, fine detail capability of the R series. And the R okay. series is uh, has higher high resolution sensors, uh, maybe has some other features in there that are specifically sort of targeted towards people who want ultra high resolution images. Um, the new R Mark III has, for example, a pixel shift uh, resolution mode that will take multiple shots, combine them in, uh, in post together, oh. and will actually increase the overall color resolution of the image. So you can get an image that will beat a 100 megapixel uh, medium format camera really? in terms of actual color resolution. Um, so that's kind of reserved for the ultra premium R series. Okay. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the S series, which tends to be lower resolution, but uh, with features catered specifically towards videographers. So you've got your uh, like 4K video for the most part, uh, usually higher shooting speeds. You can do 120 frames per second HD uh, footage out of it. Lots of video centric features in, in those cameras. Uh, and one of the uh, one of the benefits of the S series is that the lower resolution sensors have larger pixels, so they collect more light, and they tend to be the best low light performing cameras okay. in the Sony Alpha line. Okay. Um, and that's one of the cameras that I use. I use the original A7S for uh, a lot of my Milky Way night photography stuff. Right on. Cool. So this wow. shows how little I know because I just don't know gear. Yeah. Wow. I have a lot to A7 learn. A7 seven three, A7 R three. There is no. Um, S3, Rob is telling me. I'll just Not take your yet. word for yeah. it, Rob. Not a Mark and yet. so you have an A7S, Ian, or an A7S2? I have the original A7S. Okay, A7. and then that right there is the A7 III. Yeah. Mark III. A7 Not Mark III, oh. A7S. Uh, you can see the A7S, the body is a little bit smaller. I don't know if you can see that, a little bit smaller. Yeah. Dials and stuff. Camera. Yeah, okay. um, the grip is less deep, you know, it's, this is their first generation. Some people think it looks more toy-like. Um, I like it. Um, it's smaller. It's nicer. It's probably. definitely smaller, but it doesn't have a lot of the fancy things built into this series. Um, this has in-body image stabilization, you know, with a sensor shift. When you it's say this deep. and you tap it, you're tapping the A7. Mark III. Mark III. Okay, thank you. Very, very similar to the A7R Mark III. The only real tangible difference, uh, the, the thing that people d will decide to buy one or the over the other oh, yeah. is the sensor. This oh. has a 24-megapixel sensor in it, um, and then the R Mark III has a 42-megapixel sensor. Oh, I it's see. almost um, from what this guy has in it. Are they both weather-sealed? Weather is that the series that has weather-sealing? Not a single Sony camera is weather-sealed, despite what anybody says. Not <laughs> really? I thought the... oh, That's what yeah. someone said, and they were wrong. Uh, you can check out Roger Sakala's uh, articles on lens lens rentals mm -hmm. on his blog. He does a teardown of, of his gear whenever they get a camera back from one of their renters uh, that they need to fix. Uh -huh. And uh, he he's, tor he's torn down most of the Alpha Series cameras from Sony. And weather sealing is pretty minimal. Um, mm. True story, I had an A7S before this one uh, that I took to Burning Man. Okay. Uh, which is about the worst thing that you can do to a camera. 
ever. <laughs> and the to your own mental. The... <laughs> yeah, I, I taped the camera up with tons of gaffers tape and tried to uh... seal everything out, filters and more tape, and, you know, the thing looked like a roll of duct tape, you know, by the time <laughs> I was done with it. Um, and it still got dust in it. And uh, all it's kinds of little stuff. areas you wouldn't even think for dust to enter, like through the hot shoe, uh, through the lens release button, um, all kinds of, yeah. <laughs> wow. The, ba- the battery door, the battery door is terrible. Um, and, uh, yeah, not a single Sony camera is, is truly weather sealed. <laughs> is that where you got your Monarch portrait shot, that Burning Man visit with that uh, camera? Uh, wait, wait, wait. The, I saw recently in your portfolio the monarch, the girl wearing the monarch uh, outfit oh, with lots yeah. of butterflies yeah, on it. Yeah, good friends. Uh, yeah, that was that was her costume, and um, it's a tradition. Every time that we go to the Burning Man event, uh, we we take portraits. Mm. Um, so not just a night photographer. I like doing portrait stuff too. That's mm. actually stuff that I did way before I ever did night photography. It was all portrait and studio work, and um, so. Yeah, it's just like a tradition. Every Thursday of Burning Man, we take sunset portraits. Um, and yeah, I took my A7S out there one year and um, basically ruined it. That's <laughs> <laughs> part. Um, yeah, Sony cameras, weather sealing. Uh, yeah, you can take it out in you know light rain or something like that. But you know, don't submerge it. <laughs> light rain. Uh, keep your camera, you know, like it costs three thousand dollars because it does, and you know. Right. Man, well, sorry guys, I snuck in a human story there during your guys's gear moment. But uh, continuing on with the A7 III and the A7R III, Drew was wondering, Milky Way photography specific. Any you started listing some pros right there with your camera. Anything that you would say you would avoid or use for Milky Way one way or the other? Or are they both kind of the same? They're all they're all excellent, really. Um, yeah, you can you can take a look at you know the test charts from DP review or you know noise tests or something like that, and you know you, you might be able to find one reason to pick pick one over the other. But at the end of the day, um, these cameras are excellent. They especially the latest generation. I mean, they, they're they've got the latest sensor technology in them. Uh, Sony being the manufacturer of most camera sensors. Mm. Um, they sort of have a leg up when it comes to putting new sensor tech in their cameras. Um, mm-hmm. And that really does make their sensors the best. Um, yeah, I'll say that. Their sensors are the best, for well, sure. I'm not going to argue um, against that, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. man. And, you know, every manufacturer uses Sony sensors in some of their cameras. Nikon uses them. Um, the D850 now is confirmed to use a Sony yeah, sensor I say that. in it. Um, Canon even uses Sony sensors. Hey, what? Uh, some of their uh, some of their uh, smaller G series uh, uh, cameras, like their one inch sensor, like the G series. Uh, okay, um, yeah, but I believe uh, that for the video. Yeah. So then, yeah, what were you gonna say about Kirk? No, I said sure. Oh, sure, gotcha. Sure, Kirk. Sure, Kirk. Hey, Kirk, sure. Sure. <laughs> so let's get away from the Sony talk and go right into the Sony talk. Star Eater, does it still exist? Yes, still exists. Really? How, still exists. How do yeah. people notice I, it? Because I, I, I know I, how it's working, but, I mean, do you really notice it? Uh, it depends. Um, and and this, is, this, is the, this holds true to any generation of Sony camera. Um, it really depends on the type of shooting that you're doing and what you're going for. 
Um, my general recommendation is if you're using a Sony camera, beware of the issue if you're doing tracking. If you're putting that mm. thing on mm. an equatorial mount and you're doing tracking, um, that is where the issue will kind of rear its ugly head. Um, I've done some tracked bulb shots on my A7S and they just look terrible. Um, mm. And it really does eat stars. It's it's bizarre. <laughs> and it only does it when it's in bulb. So I like mm. I said, I still use it for my primary shooting for Astro, but I'm not usually usually using a tracker. Um, and in that case where the stars will trail just a little bit, um, you don't really have to worry about the issue. Um, it, it tends to only affect uh, single pixel stars, uh, which might not seem like a big deal. Um, but if you're trying to go for you know really fine detail in a in a certain portion of the Milky Way, um, you know that can make or break your image. Sure. Um, now Sony has issued some updates uh, to uh, their Mark II cameras. There is a workaround uh, that was discovered that I published some stuff about. If you have a Mark II, like a A7S Mark II or the A7R Mark II, shooting in continuous mode, like uh, you know rapid rapid fire shutter, you know, like what you'd use for sports, mm -hmm. uh, that disables the star eater issue. So you can shoot up to 30 second exposures, no star eater, oh. as long as continuous mode is enabled. Um, so that's oh. a good workaround to know. Um, yeah. on, the, on the Mark III cameras, I still have to test the, the R Mark III. Um, I have not gotten my hands on that camera to run like a thorough test of how star eater affects that camera. Um, it's still there. Um, DP Reviews talked about it um, specifically, and I've looked at some of the, the raw files from that camera, and it's still at exposures longer than 3.2 seconds, so four seconds and, and longer, um, sort of enable that noise reduction thing that starts to eat stars. And um, so it, it's, it's one of those things where you have to look at it as sort of like a, a trade-off. That camera has excellent noise noise uh, performance, as long as you're shooting a long enough shutter speed, such that those stars slightly trail, they just need to trail two pixels, then Star Eater becomes significantly less of an issue. Huh. Um, Counterproductive, and so on the on the R Mark, R Mark II, since it's a 42 megapixel sensor, you're already going to probably have some trailing in it, so the, the problem becomes much less apparent than, say, in the A7S, where you only have 12 megapixels to work with. Um, so that's where you know it, it, it becomes a, a matter of, of your preference. Like, if you're shooting for really sharp stars, um, you know, short shutter speeds and, and tracked you know, mount, be aware of the issue. It's probably going to affect you. But if you're just shooting your, your typical Milky Way shot, landscape, untracked, long exposure, it's not going to be as much of an issue. And that's how I've found um, the, the A7 Mark III to be. Um, it really doesn't, uh, it doesn't affect typical untracked landscape astrophotography shots. Um, so in those cases, I you know, definitely, definitely have no hesitation to use this camera. We, we showed some of the examples yeah, um, right. of shots. And I'm, I'm really proud of those shots. You know? um, I think, and um, I, I need to publish the full report uh, on it because I, I need to look at, at some more uh, examples. But I think on the A7 Mark III, if you shoot in bold, it no longer does star either. Um, 
as far as my test shots have shown, they shooting in the it completely disables yeah. disables the 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 issue. So um, that's good news for people who want to put this on a tracker. Mm. Um, I need to do some longer exposure test shots with it and, and really confirm and you know, really take a look at it and, and, and make sure that that's the case. Um, but my test shots so far have shown that bulb disables uh, the star eater issue uh, on the A7 Mark III. So oh, that's good pretty news. good. Okay. At the end of the day, uh, if you're not a pixel peeper and you just want to take some photos, don't worry about it. Um, you know, I published about it uh, for the reason of making people aware of it because there are a lot of astrophotographers who are disappointed in, in the cameras because of that because it was one of those things that sort of showed up um, and uh, you know a lot of Sony a lot of the Sony cameras at the time when when uh, when people started discovering it it was caused by a like a firmware upgrade that, that made the issue worse basically right. Right. And Sony sort of backpedaled a little bit on it. They issued an update that, that sort of changed it, but, you know, it was still sort of there. So um, <laughs> it's some of the light photographers the, doing yeah. ultra-long exposures, track stuff, um, you know, they have a reason to be disappointed in, in those cameras if they're not performing the way that they expect them to. Yeah. Well, right on. That's something that I know everyone's been curious about and hearing it from you, someone who's used it. And we have not. And he owns two of them, so yeah. It's, it, um, yeah. Great way to, great person to ask. I'm glad you guys asked this question. Let's move on to Chris's question from a long time ago. He was curious what your favorite focal length is for shooting Milky Way with landscape included. Oh. So you got a landscape foreground. What's your favorite focal length to go to? So I only have two Milky Way lenses. Okay. Me too. That I shoot with, um, and it's 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 funny because it's changed a bit from. Even from what my, my general recommendations are for uh, for people just starting out, um, there's the obvious recommendations uh, like like shooting with a ultra wide 14 millimeter 2.8 like the Rokinon, super affordable, you know, great astro lens. Oh yeah, right. Um, you know, great for for people starting out. Um, and uh, I I've, I've kind of shifted to the point where my favorite lens is actually a 55 millimeter 1.8. 55. Millimeter. 55 yeah interesting uh that's the sony uh 55 millimeter okay. that they make for the yeah. for the a7 series and um the reason the reason behind that is uh is using that technique of of making a panorama stitch um and i usually just do uh a two row maybe 10 frame panorama stitch um, so I'll do like five, five frames in one row and then go down and shoot the foreground with five frames across. And, you know, that'll give me roughly uh, between 70 and 100 megapixels on the final stitch of those images. And uh, it, it'll it be the equivalent of somewhere between a 24 millimeter and 20 millimeter lens um, in terms of field of view. Um, so right. it'll, it'll look like a wider angle lens, but it was shot with a 55. Right. Um, awesome. And the reason that I like that, and the reason I like doing that, is 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 multifold. There is an advantage with noise. The the longer lens has a larger aperture, larger physical aperture. It's collecting more light um, for you know any given area of the sensor, yeah. and uh, it they tend to be sharper. You know, mm -hmm. fifty millimeter is yeah. much easier lens for for lens manufacturers to make. So they're they're more well corrected for aberrations. 
Um, you can stop it down just a little bit. You know, if it's a 1.8 lens, I, I like to stop it to like 2.5, mm-hmm. you know, about one stop. And uh, that just makes that lens tack sharp. Right. I mean, corner to corner, no aberration whatsoever. Uh, really, really fine detail. And it's still collecting, you know, an adequate amount of light, even stopped down at 2.5. Right. Um, on top of that, uh, last and final thing is, is being able to stop down uh, gives you the advantage of reduced vignetting, uh, reduced dark corner light fall off on the edges of the images, um, which makes panorama stitching easier. Better. easier. Yeah. Also gives you just just better data to work with. Um, you'll have more even uh, tones across the image. Um, noise levels will be more consistent. You know, yeah, if, if you're shooting wide open, you'll end up having a uh, You'll, you'll have more noise in the corners of the image than you will in the center, typically. Yeah, because of the light. Will. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 55 millimeter, that's my favorite lens uh, shooting the Milky Way. When I, when I don't decide that I, I want to go simpler and I don't want to spend yeah. the time to the pano, uh, my wide angle lens is an 18 millimeter 2.8. That's the, uh, oh, okay. the Zeiss Battis lens. Ah, okay. Um, you know, this is the same utility as like a broken on 14 millimeter or, you know, your. 14 2.8. It's a little bit narrower um, at, because it's only 18 millimeters. Um, but I've, I've sort of, you know, gotten used to this focal length it's to the point where I, you know, I can sort of visualize it, you know. You I, think like, yeah. of focal length. I, I, I've, uh, I've really gotten used to and really enjoy, you know, shooting at this this length. Um, and, yeah, this lens, I mean, it's no slouch. It's expensive, but, you know, it's sharp and collects enough light. So, yeah. Right on. Nice. Those are two great lens choices that I did not mm. think we would hear tonight. So that's fantastic. Now, I'm not going to the Zeiss and buying that for a while, but, you know, I can get behind <laughs> the 55mm Sigma. It was with Sigma, right? That 55mm one? Uh, no, it's a, it's a Sony. It's a Sony, 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 he said, and I just pictured Sigma in my head. Sigma makes a 50. Um, they make the 51.4 art. Yeah, yeah, which is a brilliant-looking large lens, Excellent lens. Yeah. Um, that's another great option. Yeah, you know, take my recommendations, you know, based on your system. Like, there, there's probably an equivalent, you know, lens out there that, you know, suits uh, your shooting needs. Yeah, like right. Canon 51.4. Something around like it's a great lens. Yeah. yeah, something around a 50-millimeter prime. Perfect for, for those uh, panorama stitches. And then yeah. a dedicated wide angle for those large, you know, sweeping landscapes. Right on. Sweet. So then that might have been answered in part. All right. I'd say this question I'm looking at, guys, might have already been answered in part by Ian just barely. But Sam says, if the building was on fire, hopefully never in the real world, and you had time to run back and save only one camera and one lens, what would they be? Uh, Which ones the would have Probably the A7 Mark III and the 55-millimeter lens. So the A7 R3? Junk, stay there, or you just don't own it. No, he doesn't. Uh, well, I mean, I don't have an R3 personally, <laughs> but yeah, if we're talking about the gear that I already have, gotcha. Then, uh, then yeah, the A7 Mark III, uh, which is actually Diana's camera, <laughs> you're saving That's her saving. by saving, saving it, <laughs> save, her, save her camera. Um, and then yeah, just a 50 millimeter lens. There's a reason why the 50 mil is like regarded as you know the, the standard or whatever. Um, people say it emulates your, field, your human field of view or something. That's kind of BS, but uh, yeah, just, your field of view is much larger than 50 Right, it just has an attractive look to it. Yeah. Um, but 
it is versatile. Um, mm -hmm. Wide open, great portrait lens, you know, blurry backgrounds, stop down, super sharp. Right. You know, you can you can make a landscape with a with a fifty millimeter lens. And then now with digital software, we can do panorama stitching. So you can have the equivalent of a twenty millimeter mm -hmm. lens if you want. Um, you just kind of take the time to take the panorama stitch. And uh, I I use that technique all the time on the Mount Whitney trip. Every time I stopped to take a photo, I was really like stopping to take like twelve photographs, <laughs> you know, make a panorama stitch, um, just just because it's it's such a great technique for image quality and you know changing up your field of view. You know you can get more in there than than you're carrying around, yeah. and uh, it's a lot simpler. Or well, it's not simpler. It's a lot lighter, I guess, than carrying around a zoom lens that gives you that mm. focal length too. You know, I could yeah. carry a fourteen to twenty four. Or uh, you know, fifteen thirty or whatever, you know, pick a poison. Um, or I could carry a single prime that's tiny. Um, this is not a fifty mil. This is a, the, the thirty-five I was talking about earlier. Uh, um, but I can do the same technique with this, and it's tiny, barely weighs anything, and it gives me multiple options for uh, for shooting. You know, as if I had a zoom. Just. Yeah. Requires a little computation. That's all. <laughs> I think it's worth it too because then you go back, you can crop in the image you want. You it's don't have to worry to about. Do. Yeah. So let's and let let's go to you, Brendan. Do you have any gear questions for Ian before we let him go off the gear and we end it with these last two questions and let Ian, you know, sleep again someday? Well, I just broke my tripod today. <laughs> at least one of my legs. Oh, um, so, oh man. My butt got wet. My tripod went with me. My back camera was my bag, but I don't think my tripod, you know, had suffered anything because I kept it up, you know. Yeah, how did and it then break? I get back to the car and my little legs go in the middle, the, and then the bigger ones they wouldn't go in at all. Okay, all three of them were stuck. I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> so I just threw it in the car and I was just like, whatever. It's an old tripod, but so my question is, I've been looking at tripods now this morning. Oh, I missed a, I missed an incredible deal. I wish I could have got earlier, but too late for that. So. Ian, what tripod do you use, and do you have any recommendations for someone looking for someone like a replacement like I am? That's a good question. It's also one where I'm like kind of in a state of flux in, uh, I suppose. Um, for a very long time, I used uh, one of those uh, Korean-manufactured Surei, I think is how it's pronounced. Mm, yeah. It's spelled mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, S-I-R-U-I. Siriu. Yeah. S-I-R-U-I. Yeah. Um, I used one of their travel tripods. Okay. Uh, it's it's called the TO25X. It's all over my website. I just talk about it because you know I thought it was a great tripod, um, and it was. It was, a, it was a really good tripod at the time. Um, there wasn't anything quite like it. It's carbon fiber. It's a little expensive. I think it's over the two hundred dollar mark. Okay. Um, but the biggest thing for me was that it was lightweight. Um, right. You know, packed up. It was pretty small. I think it was only about um, between twelve and fourteen inches long. Uh -huh. Um, you know, and then diameter of all the legs folded up, it's probably only like, you know, three to three and a half inches in mm -hmm. diameter. So you could pack that thing and not really worry about it and, uh, you know, not worry about the extra weight or the bulk or whatever. Um, and I, I took that thing, took that thing everywhere. Mm. Uh, uh, I, I've been having problems with the legs on that particular tripod. I mean, the thing's been, you know, in the sand and the dirt and the mud. Right the water and salt water and you know all That's that stuff now too, yeah. uh, all you know it, it, it's worn out the the little twist lock uh mechanism inside of it 
I think that I'm going to order replacement parts for that tripod and keep it going. Oh, really? Uh, but since since I got that tripod, which has been several years now, um, there are so many travel tripods out there with better features, um, you know, just, just more capability. Um, I recently got a, uh, a fairly affordable tripod from Obin, which is very mm. similar. Um, they have a travel tripod. It's a, it's a five-segment carbon fiber one. Uh, legs full, full reverse. I, I, I don't remember the uh, actual uh, numbers and model. Yeah, it's like a it's like a weird number. <laughs> um, Open is uh, I think it's a brand that's exclusively on B and H. Oh, okay. David Kingham recommends some Open tripods in the past. They're they're kind of more on the affordable side. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that their build quality is you know it's not a Gitso or a really right stuff or anything like that. Right. But if you guys are looking for something affordable. I've been pretty happy with most of their stuff. Um, While you look that up, I want to say that Alicia Mandy points out that she just bought a three-legged thing, Punk's Billy. It's a lightweight option. Love it so far. Carbon fiber, packs up nice. It's small, fully serviceable, and extends to full height at about Mm -hmm. 1.85 meters. So... I was going to, I was going to mention really right stuff or not really. I'm sorry. Three-legged things. Three-legged thing. Uh, three-legged thing and uh, me photo is another one uh, mm-hmm. they make uh, both of those companies make travel tripods that are very similar to the one uh, the open that I'm uh, talking about and the and the, the Sea tripod that I'm talking about okay um, I think the one that I have is is the it's called the open at 3535 very similar to the three-legged thing and the me photo um, and uh, you know it's a reasonable tripod if you're you know I guess between Five two and six foot, I guess. If you're I a am. little taller than that, <laughs> if you're a little mean. bit taller than that, uh, I might recommend something slightly <laughs> bigger, just because you're gonna feel like you're limited height wise yeah. um, with composition. But uh, yeah, I mean, hmm. the the best thing about tripods like that, travel tripods, is that there's so much incentive to bring them with you because they are so small. Yeah, right. Yeah. They don't hold you back. You and don't think now. Nah. That's been my thinking uh, with tripods for a long time, and it really holds true. I do have a larger tripod. Um, you know, I have one that that goes up way over my head when it's fully extended, and um, you know, it's it's amazing. It's a great tripod, but I barely bring it anywhere because I can't fit it in my bag. It's you know, so it's like oh, I gotta like carry this thing. Out. You know, do I really? I'll just take the travel tripod. Um, and yeah, I. I I'll stand by pretty much any travel tripod. That's that. That's my recommendation. Hmm. So much more incentive to bring it with you. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. And you might consider, I got this from Jeremy Gerritsen, one of our listeners. He had the Sunway Photo, basically really right stuff look alike. Oh. And he got one of those, carbon fiber, and just it looked great. And a Sunway Photo has a cheaper price versus, you know, the really right stuff, $1,000 right, options. Right, so right. maybe look into that as well. So um, getting into your personal stuff and asking some advice. We're just going to end this podcast with advice from Ian Norman. Hmm. First thing, personal. I- Ian, you're out at you're going to be at out of Moab, right? Uh yeah, I'll be at out of Moab. Uh Diana and I will both be there in October. Um I think it's the end of October. Right on. Awesome. I don't know if this is going to offer you any time for us to feed you guys, but most likely you'll be busy from the moment you arrive to the moment you leave sweating. So no worries. Hopefully we'll catch you another time. But we were asked by Josh. He's looking forward to attending it. He's going to be out there. He was curious if you're going to be doing any night shoots while you're there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I've been, uh, I don't have like a, a final schedule set with Chris, uh, Chris Smith, the guy organizing uh, okay. all the Moab and out of, uh, out of Chicago conferences. Um, and those details are probably going to be worked out real soon. But the goal is to definitely do uh, a couple night, you know, outings. Um, it's going to be easy. Early, you know, early evening, place, then it's yeah. over in October. Yeah, yeah. No, I think we're, we're, we're probably anticipating either going like full nocturnal and just doing like a, you know, just lots of night shooting. Mm. Um, just because I, I think that that's what, you know, people will want. There's going to mm. be plenty of, of amazing uh, landscape photographers there too doing tons of daytime, you know, sunset, golden hour stuff. Gotcha. Um, so, so, yeah, maybe we'll focus a little more on the, on the night part of it. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we're going to do. I, I look forward to going out there. I've only been to Moab once with Diana. Uh, we, we camped at uh, Devil's something. I can't remember the name of There's it. There's a Devil's Campground or Devil's Garden out there. Maybe yeah, you're thinking Devil's of it. Is Garden. it north of yeah, Arches? You know, spent a spent a couple nights out there, and um, I, you know, I'm I'm excited to go back out there oh, and be able so to shoot. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's there's just there's so many choices, you know. So <laughs> yeah. many, it's endless, yeah. And, and uh, you know, a lot of them have been done, but that's okay. You know, it's 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 so cool to be in that in that place. I mean, it's just a it's a it's a playground. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Last time we were there, Troy Warwick got us to go through the Schaefer Trail, and we were out there already with Justin Northcraft, and we decided to continue on after we saw Troy and his family go. And man, was that awesome. was just a scenic what two hour and drive. We ended up going under Dead Horse Point and around. It's just so awesome. You're right. There's yeah. so much there, man. You're gonna yeah. have a blast if you have Beautiful. any free time. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm excited for that. What should I tell Josh? How could Josh find out what the information is? Does he just need to keep getting in contact with you directly or through out of Moab? Um, I, I mean, yeah, he can email me directly. Um, but uh, I think I think that we're going to probably have schedules going out, you know, like options for people to choose, uh, you know, what, what outings that they want to do. Oh, and, right on. And, uh, you know, if it's anything like what I saw at the – the out of Chicago uh, conference here, it'll, it'll probably be pretty, you know, low key and relaxed. Like we'll go out, you know, I'll give best recommendations for people to start out if anybody's like struggling. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just going to be, you know, people having a good time photographing things together, getting their questions answered, um, you know, and working through the challenges together. Um, I, th- I think that's, you know, that's what it's all about, really, at the, at the end of the day, is, is the experience. Sweet. Well, that kind of segues perfectly into Sam's question, because you're talking about leading and guiding, taking people, teaching milkweed photography. Sam's wondering, what is your advice, Ian, for advanced astrophotogs who want to set up a part-time business running weekend astro workshops? Hmm. First thing is to just do it, I guess. <laughs> Right. Um, you know, I mean, cover, cover your cover your bases. Um, now, you know, I'll, I'll be honest on that front. Like, workshops are not something that I do primarily. Um, Diana and I both decided that uh, we wanted to focus more on the blog side of things and really just try to reach as many people, you know, digitally as possible. Workshops are very exclusive, very special, you know, mm-hmm. events. Um, you only get to reach, you know, the small number of people that are, that are that are with you, and it, you know, it's a great experience for sure. Uh, but when it came to 
like kind of really focusing on what we wanted Lonely Spec to be. I wanted I wanted it to be for everybody, you know. Yeah. So we're like, okay, well let's let's focus on the website stuff. Let's, let's make some videos, make some tutorials, you know, just talk about the stuff that tries to make it as accessible uh, as possible for people. And uh, so you know, we stopped doing the workshops. So I guess what I'm saying is, take my input on the workshop thing with a grain of salt, right? Uh, right. Because because my personal experience with it is maybe more limited than uh, some of the other guys out there. Uh, that are doing it, you know, guys like David Kingham, uh, for example, or I, I don't even know if he's doing workshops anymore now. Who, who is doing workshops? Who's doing stuff? workshop? You know, David Swindler, ourselves, Royce Bear, yeah. you can go out with Nick Page, but for Milky right. Way stuff, there's not a ton. Mm. Go out with Joshua Snow on individual night workshops. Right. Yeah. But yeah, the first step is to just do it. I mean, yeah, you know, it might take some time for you to get your first, uh, attendees, ask your friends, ask your family, you know, um, make your website, you know, those are, those are things that you can do in a day. You can make a website in a day yeah. and just get something out there and just sit, tell the world that, you know, Hey, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm good enough at this, you know, show them your work and show them what you want to do and why they're going to have a good time, uh, on this workshop and, you know, make a shopping cart there so that they can pay you. Um, you, you know, you're not you're not going to get your first client if they have no way to pay you. So right. um, those are the those are the first things to think about. Uh, second things to to think about are planning. You know, like you know, have a date and time. Uh, check out the bookings. You know, really look at the costs. Don't make your workshop free. Don't do it at cost. You mm. know, make sure you're actually making money. Um, this is a lot of on, work. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a a, a lot of work and. Um, you know, anticipate that. Pay yourself. You know, give yourself a good rate, right, and right. Um, you know, you'll find somebody to pay it, to pay it, and you know, that'll be the start of of it. Of it. Um, and it's definitely going to be a learning process. Uh, sure. So. Yeah. Right on. Sam says, "Thank you so much for answering and raising all my questions." He's really appreciated hearing from you, Ian. Josh, back on the question for whether you'll be doing the out of Moab stuff. He's like, awesome. I'm so excited to see the night class offerings. Thanks, Ian. See you in October. And then we got awesome. one. Bonus question from Graham out in Australia asking about panos. He's curious, do you start with the sky first? Yes, sort of. Uh, sort of. So you close I your start, eyes. I start at the horizon and I bias to the sky. Okay. If that makes hmm. sense. Gotcha. So my first exposures tend to be inclusive of the horizon. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it it's, just gives me a place to start. Yeah. Um, but uh, it also becomes like the primary alignment, yeah, uh, you know, thing yeah. that I'm looking at when it comes to, to doing my segments. Especially if I don't have a, a, a like a uh, a pano head with detents yeah. in it. If I'm actually looking at something. I need to be able to see something in the foreground to reference how far I'm moving between shots. Um, and I don't always have a pano head uh, with me. If I'm packing light, then you know I'll, I'll leave that at home. So that's why I started the horizon. From there, um, I'll usually shoot left to right, um, sweep across the horizon, slightly biased to the sky, so I've got, I've got you know, a little bit of Milky Way, a little bit of stars in there. Uh, and then I'll shoot the rest of the sky after that. I'll just sort of zigzag up. Um, and when I'm all finished with the sky to the full extent, uh, you know, field of view that I want, 
Then I'll go back down and uh, shoot the foreground. And at that point, I'm I'm not really worried about time. The foreground's not going to move on me like the sky exactly. does. Exactly. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll take some time. Sometimes I'll even uh, bump my exposure up a little bit to try and bring some more light. So if I was shooting with a 15-second exposure for, for the, the stuff that included the sky, then maybe I'll bump it up to a full 30 seconds, just get a little more light. Um, if I'm, you know feeling relaxed and I don't feel like I need to rush. I like my composition. Uh, I'll sometimes even enter bulb and, you know, do, do a couple minute exposures for, for the foreground. Um, you know, just to really burn in and, and get a lot of the foreground, uh, in, in the shot. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically the, cool. basically the, the setup that I use Sweet. In, in terms of shooting pianos. Awesome. Glad I'm doing it right still because that's the exact same way that I've been doing it. And I always like to start with the sky because it's moving. It's just easy Mm -hmm. mode. Easy mode. So, guys, thank you. For those of you who have been commenting, thank you guys so much for joining us. Ian, thanks for not bailing on our hack operation that has 45 minutes (laughs) of tech issues. I I knew we'd work it out. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. It's like a nightmare. It's a new nightmare every time we try it. This option that we ended up with, guys, was one option we were thinking of starting with. We thought, you know what? Let's just make it simple because we could do Facebook Live combining him, bring him in. Just, oh, it's easy. Right, right. Oh, why? Why? Oh, why? So, so stoked to have you, Ian. Thank you so much, man. You are yeah, one of the so master. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> ah, you're welcome. Thank you. It, we, you're one of our master gurus that we look up to. So happy to have you on. Let's not wait a whole year to have you back if you're okay with it. And I'll even yeah. have awesome. I'll even have yeah. all these tech glitches fixed. You guys are here in October. Maybe it won't be impossible to see. I'll keep in contact with you, hopefully. And guys, okay. Photog Adventure listeners out there, we want to thank you, especially patrons. We have a few of you guys who've jumped on recently. I just want to pay. I just want to pay honor to you guys. So quickly, hey, thank you so much, Alex and Kevin. We've also got Sebastian, Ashley, and Teresa. They all joined in the last thirty days. Awesome. We Thanks, really, guys. really appreciate you guys supporting us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Photog Adventures, and you guys can help support the nonsense that is Photog Adventures. <laughs> Photog Misadventures and Adventures are all still here. The Misadventures come free. So it's a bonus. Every <laughs> it's time. a bonus feature. Even if I'm by myself. It's still... <laughs> Ian, for people yeah. right now who are thinking, I'm going to get into Milky Way stuff, do you have one parting advice that we can end the podcast on and then hang up this phone? Hmm. I just hit you that with a last minute, like <laughs> no time to think over it. Go somewhere dark. Just, uh, you know, do a little bit of research and and find a park near you. Um, I mean, even even here here in Chicago, like there are some places right out the, outside the cities, you know, little wildlife preserves and stuff like that that you can go to. Um, you know, take the time to go somewhere different and 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 shoot there because that's really where you're gonna where you're going to learn, you know, the process, you're going to get the shot that you, you know, that you can look at your camera and you're like, whoa, you know, that's, that's so mm-hmm. cool. Um, and that's where you get the itch, you know, for, for doing this. Um, I, you know, I think you guys would probably agree too. Like when you first see what your camera is capable of capturing, um, it turns the night sky into something even more special. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, really exactly. Does. To really experience that, you know, you, you got to find somewhere dark. Uh, it's unfortunate that 
we have as much light pollution as we do in this yeah. day and age. Oh, man. Um, and you know, there are efforts to try and curb that a little bit, but at the end of the day, the night's going away slowly. And, uh, you know, the best we can do is preserve what we have. So, yeah. you know, go to those places, like pay your entrance fee to the national park that, that keeps that place going. Yes, please. Uh, so that we can all, you know, experience these beautiful night skies. Um, yeah. Check out the International Dark Sky Association, too. They're a pretty cool organization. They make dark sky reserves. They, they sponsor the creation of dark sky reserves around the world um, to raise awareness of communities to keep their stars, their, their, keep their skies dark. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool to see when, when a place gets a, a dark sky designation. And you sort of know at that point, it's like, okay, cool. That community has worked with this organization to try and keep the night sky there for right. us, you know, for right. the future. Um, and that's where you're going to get the best, get the best photos where you're going to have the best time. Um, yeah, go find somewhere dark. Absolutely, cool. guys. I'm thankful that you said that advice, Ian, because people sometimes ask about gear all the time and wondering what they need to do first. And it's just, you know what? Take what you've already got, go somewhere yeah. dark, yeah. do it practice it you'll find out after doing it in the dark skies what you need to do better or what could be better and you'll know already your gear recommendations you'll you'll yeah. figure it out intuitively it's just so much fun don't stress out about what you've already got just go out and do it Sounds yeah 90 percent of the questions i get are about gear hmm. and most of those really don't matter that much you know it, it's at, at the end of the day it's it's really just going out there and doing it yeah um Gear, gear that you got. If you don't have a camera, uh, you're probably gonna have a hard time with your cell phone. Oh yeah. Uh, so, so maybe invest a little bit into a camera, but <laughs> yeah. don't worry about it too much. You know, find the one that that feels good and looks good and and fits in your budget, and you don't you don't really don't have to nitpick about it too much. So. Right. Yeah. It's not a decision you're making for life because you will change that mind. You know, right. in a year or two anyway. Yeah. So thanks again, cool. Ian. Thank you, everybody. Get out there, we say it. Have a photog adventure of your own. Go and do it. Have fun. Enjoy it. Ask any questions you guys want, and we'll have Ian on again soon, and we'll learn from the master guru, Ian Norman. Oh, Ian, everyone knows about LonelySpec.com and other places that they can find, like Photon Collective. Uh, is there anything else you want to pub before we let you guys let you go? Yeah, uh, our travel blog that is. Uh, Primarily run by Diana, my wife, is north to south.us. All right on. Um, and there you will find kind of the, the secrets behind how we live on the go. Um, oh. Everything about, you know, the things that we think about bringing when we go on a trip. Uh, we're just about to go to Italy, and we'll probably blog about that a little bit on north to south. And, uh, you know, how do we do it? Like, how do we live out of a backpack, essentially? Right. Literally just a small backpack. Like, I'm going to be taking, I don't know if you can see this. Really? That one with it's, you right there? It's a. It's just a 28-liter backpack. And, uh, you know, it fits underneath the seat in front of you in an airline flight. And it's going to be all that we're bringing on this trip. Oh, and wow. How many days? Stuff that we, we have on, on North to South. Um, but, you know, the choices and de decisions that we make... Um, related to travel um and the places that we've been you know places that we love uh, a lot of our travel has been in europe lately and we're starting to branch out a little bit more to, to other other places um but 
that's uh, that's the shout out that I want to give awesome. is, is to North to South at US. You can also follow uh, our North to South Instagram, which is North to South Travel. So Instagram.com slash North to South Travel. And uh, and then of course there's the Facebook Facebook page as well, which is also the same thing, North to South Travel. Cool. Nice. Awesome. Cool. You guys get out there on Instagram, follow him there. We'll have the lo- notes in the description in the podcast. If you listen to the audio podcast, you'll see him down below. We'll have all these connected so that you can have a photog adventure out there and just adventure throughout the world. Don't be so afraid. There's not as much as you actually need to get out there and learn from guys like Ian Norman. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you for Lonely Spec, north2south.us. That's going to be a great site. I'm going to use it before our trip to the UK, and I can even talk about it to you guys and say all the advice I got because 28-liter backpack only, okay, I want to go that route. Yeah. Hopefully I can. Hopefully I can. So thanks, Ian. Have a good night. See you guys. Thanks for staying with us. Thanks, Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Brandon. You're welcome. Have a good week, guys. Yeah, bye.